And that completes my final report until we reach touchdown. We're now on full automatic in the hands of the computers. I've tucked my crew in for the long sleep, and I'll be joining them soon. In less than an hour, we'll finish our sixth month out of Cape Kennedy. Six months in deep space. By our time, that is. According to Dr. Hasline's theory of time in a vehicle traveling nearly the speed of light, the Earth has aged nearly 700 years since we left it. Well, we've aged hardly at all. <laughs> Maybe so. This much is probably true. The men who sent us on this journey are long since dead and gone. You who are reading me now are a different breed. I hope a better one. I leave the 20th century with no regrets. But one more thing. If anybody's listening, that is. Nothing scientific. It's purely personal. Seen from out here. Everything seems different. Time bends. Space is boundless. It squashes a man's ego. I feel lonely. That's about it. Tell me, though. Does man, that marvel of the universe, that glorious paradox who sent me to the stars, still make war against his brother? Every night at seven, you walk in as fresh as clover, and I begin to sigh all over again. Every night at seven, you come by like me returning, and me, oh my, I start in yearning again. You seem to bring far away spring near me. I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven. Every time the same thing happens, I fall once again in love, but only with you. The year is 2673. The day, March 26th. George Taylor has just recorded his last diary entry to send back to Earth, and surveys his sleeping companions around him. Two men and a woman, all strapped into cryogenic chambers and sleeping soundly for the journey to the future. Taylor, satisfied with their condition, and the condition of the ship, straps himself in also. The lid on the chamber closes, and he falls asleep. thing we are aware of is a spinning, careening, pitching, and whining as the spaceship falls into the atmosphere and crashes into the ocean. 
We've landed and are sinking with the astronauts. Inside, the ship emergency lights are blinking, and everyone is still asleep. All the men have a full growth of beards. Taylor is the first to wake up, then Landon, then Dodge. Upon waking, Taylor calls the name of the female astronaut who accompanied them, Stuart. Receiving no answer, he stands up to look at her chamber and finds it containing the shriveled, aged corpse of the woman. There is a crack in her chamber. Later, Taylor explains to Landon that she died in her sleep nearly a year ago due to an air leak. Suddenly, there is a loud whining, and water begins coming through a crack in the ship's casement. The ship is flooding. As they are escaping the sinking ship, Taylor happens to glance at the Earth time indicator and discovers that it's November 25th, and the year is 3978. They have been asleep for 1,305 years. All men jump out of the ship and into the escape raft. She's sinking. As they paddle away, the ship sinks further Going. and further into the water Going. until it finally vanishes. God. Okay, we're here to stay. After walking around for several days and nights, they discover some plant growth and follow it. They come to the edge of a mountain and discover what appear to be scarecrows. Five large X-shaped crosses draped with different types of animal skins pepper the horizon. Taking a closer look at the scarecrows, Taylor sees a grove full of trees and hears water falling and decides to pass the scarecrows. Following the sound, the men come to an opulent stream which is surrounded by trees and green plants and grass for as far as the eye can see. They've seen nothing but dirt, rocks, and dry barren sand for days and are so happy to see the water. They strip completely naked and dive in and swim for a short while. While swimming, however, their clothes are stolen, and they discover there is life beyond the plants on the planet. It is then that they run across the other humans on the planet. They're all primitive, animalistic, unspeaking, and unintelligent, and are also completely unaware of the presence of the newcomers. They are gathering coconuts from the trees and corn from the field around them and eating it, oblivious to all else, except for a woman who makes eye contact with Taylor. Suddenly, all the humans in the group stand totally still, stop eating, and seem to not even breathe. There's a moment of tense silence, and then a loud screeching sort of horn is heard, and the humans all begin running in panic. Not knowing what else to do, Taylor, London, and Dodge all follow them, only to be stopped at a hedge of corn by what appears to be giant whips made of large sticks. The humans turn and run in the opposite direction, and horses are seen. Suddenly, gunshots ring out, and we find the horses are being ridden by rifle-bearing gorillas. The hunt is on, and the humans are all running for their lives. Some escape, others aren't so lucky. During their attempts to escape, Dodge is killed, and Taylor is shot in the neck. All of the astronauts now captured. The survivors of the hunt are tied to sticks and carried to a wagon, where they are placed into a giant wooden cage. The living victims are taken to a hospital, 
Meanwhile, the dead are piled up on top of one another and placed in front of the gorillas, who take photographs with their prey, smiling at their successful killing. Taylor witnesses one of these trophy photographs being taken and immediately seems to pass out after witnessing it. When he wakes up, he finds that he is in the hospital, has had a blood transfusion, and has had the wound in his neck stitched up. It is here that he first becomes aware of Dr. Zira, the head researcher and animal psychologist of the community. Taylor, half-conscious, overhears a conversation between Zira and one of the other ape doctors. We later learn in the film that he is called Galen, discussing the scientific research they've been conducting on the brain activity in humans. Later, after his surgery to close up his wound is completed, Taylor is placed in a cage in a large observation area with other humans who are more primitive in nature than he is. The other humans are obviously feral. Taylor attempts to communicate with Zira, who has taken to calling him Bright Eyes, but the wound in his neck has temporarily damaged his vocal cords and he is unable to speak yet. Zira feels sorry for him and brings him a mate. It is the young woman from the field who first made eye contact with Taylor before the human hunt took place. She is placed in the cage with him, and they are left alone. Next, we are introduced to Cornelius, Zira's fiancé. He is an archaeologist in the community and a researcher for Dr. Zaius. After several days of being observed by Dr. Zaius and Zira, Taylor is introduced to Cornelius. Taylor attempts several times during Zira's conversation with Zaius and Cornelius to show that he is intelligent and capable of speech via writing, but is thwarted several times. After a while, a frustrated Taylor steals Zira's notepad and is able to write the words, My name is Taylor, on the paper, and give it to her. Here, the line of communication is finally opened up, and discoveries begin being made about Taylor's origins and the true history of man, which frightens Cornelius. He knows the dangers of delving too deeply into the past, and fears he will be executed for Zira's curiosity. <laughs> it's a stunt. Ah, humans can't write. Dear, you're a scientist. Don't you believe your own eyes? Where did you learn to do this? Jefferson Public School. Fort Wayne, Indiana. Back on that planet you say you came from? Uh-huh. <laughs> Maybe he is intelligent, but he's also uh, crazy. Cornelius, Cornelius, please. Dodge was killed in the hunt. What happened to Landon? I don't know. Do you have maps? Here, you were captured here. 
You fell into the water here? You came ashore, marched across the desert? Mountains? Many days and nights, and reached the jungle. Out of the question. Cornelius, why do you insist on provoking him? No creature can survive in the Forbidden Zone. I know, I've been there, I've seen it. Then how do you account for me? I don't. And I'm not going to try. But what about your theory? The existence of someone like Taylor might prove it. Zero, do you want to get my head chopped off? Don't be foolish. If it's true, they'll have to accept it. <laughs> no, they won't. Oh, Cornelius has developed the most brilliant hypothesis. But I'm probably wrong. That the ape evolved from a lower order of primate, possibly man. In his trip to the Forbidden Zone, he discovered traces of a culture older than recorded time. The evidence was very meager. You didn't think so then? That was before Dr. Zayas and half of the Academy said that my idea was heresy. How can scientific truth be heresy? What if Taylor is exactly the proof you needed? A mutation. A missing link between the unevolved primate and the ape. Touchy, isn't he? I am not a missing link. Well, if you were a missing link, the sacred scrolls wouldn't be worth their parchment. Well, maybe they're not. <laughs> oh, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that battle. <laughs> After the conversation between Cornelius, Zira, and Taylor takes place, Dr. Zaius commands that Taylor be returned to his cage. After which point, Zaius, who obviously seems afraid of Taylor, orders that Taylor is to be neutered. In the process of being removed from his cage, the gorilla orderly on duty laughingly states, if you only knew what they were going to do, and tries to grab Taylor. Knowing he is in trouble, Taylor knocks the gorilla out and runs for his life through the city, pushing past as many apes as he can who get in his way. During his flight from danger, Taylor runs through the natural history exhibit in the Apes Communities Museum, and to his horror, discovers Dodge's body. Dodge, along with a group of other dead humans, is embalmed, taxidermied, and placed on display as part of an exhibit, as an animal would be in a human zoo. While standing in shock, staring at the body of his dead friend, a chimpanzee mother and child come across Taylor, and he frightens them. The mother's terrified screams are heard, and Taylor is seen by the guards, who again try to catch him. He runs away, only to be caught after a few moments in a net and ends up dangling from an archway in the town square. It is at this point that Zira rushes forward and grabs for him in an attempt to bring him back to safety, but she is pushed away by a gorilla in charge of security who claims him to be in the custody of the Ministry of Science. The gorilla then reaches up and grabs Taylor by the hair, and he indignantly turns to face the ape and with a raspy voice shouts, Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! Much to the shock of all the apes in the entire community square who are present, including Dr. Zira. After several weeks, Taylor is taken into a courtroom and is soon met by a group of three orangutan judges and Cornelius and Zira. This tribunal, as we soon discover, is a kangaroo court intended solely for the purpose of condemning Taylor. During the tribunal, Taylor is not allowed to speak in order to defend himself, and Cornelius and Zira are accused of heresy. 
Things are only about to get worse for the trio, as it is soon disclosed by one of the orangutans in the tribunal that one of the other astronauts that crash-landed on the planet had survived. When Taylor is taken to seek him out, he discovers that Landon has been lobotomized and has no idea that anything is taking place around him. Realizing that his friend has been reduced to a walking vegetable, Taylor asks Zero whether she knew of this or not. She admits to him that she had no knowledge of what had happened to Landon, nor had she ever seen him before. In a rage, as the realization comes to him that the orangutans ordered Landon be lobotomized so that he could not prove that Taylor wasn't lying, Taylor attacks the Tribunal of Judges and is bound in a net and dragged back to the courtroom. It is here where Dr. Zayas stands before the Tribunal and explains that Landon was lobotomized after experiencing a severe skull fracture during the human hunt, and this procedure was done in the thoughts that it would save his life. He then claims that the beast could not speak, of course, nor will he ever speak. This statement enrages Taylor, and he lashes out at Dr. Zayas. It is at this point that Taylor is ordered to be gagged by the tribunal, and Cornelius and Zira both take a stand to defend him. May it please the tribunal, I for one grant you that this creature cannot have come from another planet, but this much is certain. He does come from somewhere in the Forbidden Zone. He's described the region to us and described it accurately, for I have been there. You visited the Forbidden Zone? Yes, sir. A, a year ago, with the special permission of the Academy. He exceeded his orders. His travel permit was cancelled immediately. Yes, sir, that is true, thanks to you. But... Not before I discovered evidence of a simian culture that existed long before the sacred scrolls were written. Objection! These remarks are profane and irrelevant. Sustain your archaeological theories have no bearing on the disposition of this creature. Let them talk, Mr. President. Let them talk. Sirs, our theories have a bearing on his identity. How so? Well, let us assume, as common sense dictates that the prisoner's story is false. But if he did not come from another planet, then surely he sprang from our own. Yes, sprang. As an animal psychologist, I have found no physiological defect to explain why humans are mute. Objection! Sustained! Their speech organs are adequate. The flaw lies not in anatomy, but in the brain. Objection! Sustain! Sustain all objections, but face the truth. Yes. Behold this marvel, this living paradox, this missing link in an evolutionary chain. Silence her! You go too far! During these arguments, the frustrated orangutans sit, performing the see-no-evil, speak-no-evil, hear-no-evil gestures, as Zira argues the point of Taylor's origins to them, obviously wanting nothing to do with what she has to say. After a few moments of allowing Zira to speak her case, the tribunal interrupts her and calls for the indictment to be announced. Cornelius and Zira are accused of contempt of the tribunal, malicious mischief, and scientific heresy, and they are both therefore temporarily deposed from their places of prominence in the scientific community. The hearing is adjourned, and Taylor is taken to Dr. Zayas's chambers. Meanwhile, Cornelius and Zira silently leave the courtroom, heads bowed, clasping one another's hands in defeat. 
In the privacy of his chambers, Zaius delivers the verdict and the ultimate fate of the trio to Taylor. Well, the verdict is in. At the moment, your two simian friends and sponsors are free on bail, but they'll soon be brought to trial for heresy. What about me? Oh, your case was preordained. In a way, you did the state a service because you made it possible for us to expose Zera and Cornelius. Now the tribunal has placed you in my custody for final disposition. You realize what that means? No. Emasculation to begin with. Then experimental surgery on the speech centers, on the brain. Eventually a kind of living death. However, I have it in my power to grant a reprieve. That is why I summoned you here tonight. Tell me who and what you really are and where you came from, and no veterinary shall touch you. I told you that at that hearing of yours. You lied! Where is your tribe? My tribe? <laughs> they live on another planet in another solar system. Even in your lies, some truth slips through. That mythical community you're supposed to come from, Fort Wayne. What about it? A fort! Unconsciously, you chose a name that was belligerent. Where were you nurtured? Then you don't believe that prosecutor's charge that I'm a monster created by Dr. Zero? Certainly not. Ah, uh, you're a mutant. That's what Zira and Cornelius claim. You're talking heresy, Doctor. <laughs> of course. Well, suppose I am a mutant. How can the appearance of one mutant send you into a panic? Because you're not unique. There's the one you call Landon. Oh, then you admit that... I admit that where there's one mutant, there's probably another and another and another, a whole nest of them. Where is your nest, Taylor? Where are your women? Thank you. Thank you for calling me Taylor. Dr. Zayas, I know who I am. But who are you? How in hell did this upside-down civilization get started? You may well call it upside-down since you occupy its lowest level, and deservedly so. Our eastern desert has never been explored because we've always assumed that life cannot exist there. Taylor, save yourself. Tell me, is there another jungle beyond the Forbidden Zone? I don't know. If you're trying to protect others of your kind, it'll cost you your identity. I'm not protecting anyone. This whole thing is insane. What have I done? six hours to make a full confession. After that, I shall use surgery to obtain one. Guards! All right, you can cut pieces out of me. You've got the power. Return this creature to his cage. But you don't have a fear. Remember that! Remember that! Because you're afraid of me! What are you afraid of, doctor?
After several hours of being locked up in his cage, Zira's nephew Lucius comes with a paper claiming that Taylor is meant to be moved to the zoo. The gorilla on duty falls for the ruse, and on the young chimp's order, Taylor knocks the gorilla out and helps tie him up. He learns that Zira concocted the plan to abduct him in order to find proof to clear all three of their names. As they prepare to leave, Taylor stops at his mate's cage, who he had long ago named Nova. The young chimp tells Taylor that Zira left him with specific instructions that Nova was not to come with them, but Taylor refuses to leave without her, thus leaving the chimp no choice but to allow her to come along. They find Zira, and she gives him a loincloth to change into. He asks for clothes, but she tells him that as all men look alike to most apes, the loincloth is the safest disguise for him. He relents, and he and Nova get into an enclosed wagon, and they drive away. In the morning, they meet Cornelius on the road, and their plan to go into the Forbidden Zone is disclosed. Cornelius explains that it's a three-day ride across the desert to reach the digging site he had been to one year previous on his research expedition. As he and Zira have been indicted for heresy, there isn't any point of them going back to the ape civilization as it would only be a matter of time before they were convicted. Soon they are on their way to their destination, and along the way, Taylor asks Cornelius why the valley is referred to as the Forbidden Zone. Cornelius explains that no one truly knows, only that it was an old law laid down centuries ago by the ape lawgiver in the Sacred Scrolls, and no one ever questioned it. After several days of traveling, they arrive to the beach where the astronauts landed. They set up camp, and after getting cleaned up in the ocean, Taylor shaves off his beard. The apes are shocked by his new appearance, and Cornelius quips, Somehow, it makes you look less intelligent. Taylor then asks to see inside the cave, and Cornelius begins to take him in, only to be stopped milliseconds later by Zira, who discovers that Dr. Zaius and a troop of militant gorillas had followed them all the way to the Forbidden Zone in an attempt to bring them back to the civilization. As a safety precaution, Cornelius had brought weapons, though he truly believed they weren't needed, and Taylor had armed himself with a rifle prior to their leaving. Seeing Zaius and his militia arriving, Taylor takes up his arms and shoots over their heads to prevent them from coming any closer. He then warns Zaius that if there is any more shooting, he will be the first one shot. Dr. Zaius then withdraws his troops and confronts Cornelius and Zira. How did you know we'd come here? It wasn't difficult. Only an apostate would flee to the Forbidden Zone. And only a fool would give a gun to an animal. I ask you to reconsider the rash course you've undertaken. If you're convicted of heresy, the most you'll get is two years. But if you persist in pointing guns in my direction, you'll hang for high treason. We never meant to be treasonous, sir. But up there, in the face of that cliff, there is a vast cave. And in that cave, a fabulous treasure of fossils and artifacts. I've seen some of your fossils and artifacts. There's your minister of science. Honor bound to expand the frontiers of knowledge. Taylor, please! Except that he's also chief defender of the faith. There is no contradiction between faith and science. True science. Are you willing to put that statement to the test? Taylor, I would much rather that... Take it easy. You saved me from this fanatic. Maybe I can return the favor. What is your proposal? When were those sacred scrolls of yours written? Twelve hundred years ago. All right. Now, if they can prove those scrolls don't tell the whole truth of your history, if they can find some real evidence of another culture from some remote past, will you let them off? Of course. 
Taylor then sets Lucius to stand guard as they all go into the cave to look over Cornelius's archaeological findings, and Dr. Zaius orders Cornelius to present his full findings to him. It was at this level that I discovered traces of an early ape creature, a stage of primitive barbarism, really, dating back some 1,300 years, roughly. It was at this level I discovered cutting tools and arrowheads of quartz and the fossilized bones of carnivorous gorillas. But the artifacts lying here were found at this level and date back uh, 700 years earlier. That's the paradox. For the more ancient culture is the more advanced. No, admittedly, many of these objects are unidentified, but clearly they were fashioned by beings with a knowledge of metallurgy. Indeed, the fact that many of these tools are unknown to us suggests a culture which, uh, in certain ways, equals our own. Some of the evidence is uncontestable. Don't speak to me in absolutes. The evidence is contestable. I apologize, sir. During his presentation, Zira points out a human doll laying among the debris, and Zaius picks it up to examine it. He then carries it over to Nova. After playing for a few moments, Nova accidentally drops the doll, and it utters the word, Mama! Zira's jaw drops, and Taylor picks up the doll. Looking at Dr. Zaius, he asks if an ape would create a human doll that could speak. He then contemptuously throws the doll to Dr. Zaius, who catches it in disgust. Suddenly, shooting is heard outside, and it is discovered by the group that the gorillas have attacked Lucius. Taylor becomes embroiled in a gunfight with them, and Cornelius and Zira take Nova under a structure to protect her. Taylor feigns an injury to draw Dr. Zaius out of the cave in which he is still hidden, and demands him to make the troops leave. Zaius reluctantly obeys at gunpoint. Lucius turns out to be unscathed, though highly indignant, and Taylor sends him around to get food and provisions for himself and Nova to travel. He then takes Dr. Zaius hostage and ties him up against an old log on the beach. It is during this time that Dr. Zaius admits that he knew the entire time that humans once ruled the earth. He has Cornelius take out a portion of the sacred scrolls and read it aloud so that all on the beach can hear. Cornelius obeys and reads the passage. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. At this moment, the guards come with the supplies, and Taylor prepares to leave, but not before saying goodbye to his newfound friends. How about coming along? We can't. It's better than going to jail for heresy. Oh, they can't convict us of heresy? You've helped prove our innocence. Besides, his culture is our culture. Well, good luck then. I still say you're making a mistake. That's the spirit. Keep him flying. What? The flags of discontent. Remember, never trust anybody over 30. Doctor, I'd like to kiss you goodbye. All right, but you're so damned ugly. 
With permission, Taylor kisses Zira, much to Cornelius's displeasure. He hisses at Taylor while witnessing the farewell smooch, and Taylor prepares to ride off with Nova, but not before warning Dr. Zayas. Don't try to follow us. I'm pretty handy with this. Of that I'm sure. All my life I've awaited your coming and dreaded it. Like death itself. Why? I've terrified you from the first, Doctor. I still do. You're afraid of me and you hate me. Why? Because you're a man. And you're right. I have always known about man. From the evidence, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. His emotions must rule his brain. He must be a warlike creature who gives battle to everything around him. Even himself. What evidence? There were no weapons in that cave. The Forbidden Zone was once a paradise. Your breed made a desert of it ages ago. It still doesn't give me the why. A planet where apes evolved from men? There's got to be an answer. Don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find. Waving a last farewell to his friends, Taylor and Nova ride off and away from the apes. As promised, Dr. Zayas stops the guards from following Taylor and allows him to escape, but not before ordering the guerrillas to seal off the cave so that Cornelius's proof cannot be shown to the tribunal at the next trial. Dr. Zayas admits that he plans to allow Cornelius and Zira to be convicted of heresy. When Lucius protests, asking what is to become of the future, Dr. Zayas answers that he may have just saved it for ape kind. Concerned, Zira asks what Taylor will find beyond the Forbidden Zone, and Dr. Sayas answers that he will find his destiny. Finally, we see Taylor and Nova riding quietly along the beach, on their journey to the jungle beyond the Forbidden Zone and possible freedom. But halfway down the beach, Taylor stops in his tracks. There is a gigantic structure blocking their path. He gets off the horse and walks closer to the structure to get a better look and Nova follows him. Then, with shock and horror, he exclaims, Oh, my God. I'm back. I'm home. All the time. We finally really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, damn you! God damn you all to hell! The camera pans up, and the audience is finally able to fully see what has caused Taylor such grief. In full view and humongous, we discover the decayed, rotting, frayed remains of the Statue of Liberty, buried breast-deep into the ocean and sand. It is then we realize that the astronauts never actually left the Earth. They only traveled a few thousand years into its future and discovered the wasteland, now known as the Planet of the Apes, was the smoldering remains of the Earth we once knew. After it had been completely destroyed by a nuclear bomb. Overcome with grief, Taylor lays face down on the beach, sobbing, and the film ends. 
The story of Planet of the Apes was based on the novel Le Planet des Singes, written by French author Pierre Boulet, author of Bridge on the River Kwai, and was ultimately envisioned by producer Arthur P. Jacobs. Jacobs teamed up with Rod Serling to write scripts after purchasing the rights to the novel before it was eventually published in the early 1960s. Knowing the film needed a star to gather interest from studio heads, Jacobs contacted Charlton Heston to play the lead role in 1965. Heston agreed to do the film, but they had trouble getting the studios to take them seriously. There were multiple concerns that the audience would laugh at the ape makeups, so a test was ordered for a scene with primitive makeups to be filmed. The makeup test scene starred Chuck Heston, James Brolin as Cornelius, Edward G. Robinson as Dr. Zayas, and Linda Harrison, who would later play Nova in the film, as Zira. Ben Nye did the makeups for the screen test, which passed inspection with flying colors. Seeing that no one laughed at the makeups, Zanuck gave Jacobs the go-ahead, and the production went into full swing. The location chosen for the majority of the filming was Malibu State Park, aka the Fox Ranch, and filming officially began in the spring of 1967. Now the production needed someone with a firm knowledge of prosthetics to create lifelike makeups for the roles of the apes, and John Chambers was brought in to take over the makeup department. Chambers was a former World War II medical technician who had begun his career working in a veteran's hospital, designing prosthetic limbs and facial restorations for injured soldiers. In the early 1950s, he moved to California, believing his unique skills would prove a valuable asset to the newly emerging television industry. His skill with prosthetics soon put him at the top of his profession. Within a decade, he was developing creature makeups for shows like The Munsters, The Outer Limits, and Lost in Space. He even designed Mr. Spock's famous ears for the Star Trek television series. Chambers was innovative, clever, and quick. Skills that would be put to the test when he began working on Planet of the Apes in January 1967. The task was formidable. Chambers and his team had to design appliances that could turn over 200 human beings into walking, talking apes. Do it for under $1 million and make it happen in less than four months. Surrounding himself with talented artists and promising newcomers, Chambers worked around the clock and extras were hired just to sit in for numerous makeup tests. Next, design choices were made to differentiate various types of apes. Chimps, who were sympathetic to man in the story, were made to look a little more human in appearance. The gorillas represented the ape military and were given faces much fiercer than their real-life counterparts. And the aristocratic orangutans were given a more noble visage. What Chambers was creating for Planet of the Apes was not only ingenious, it was breaking new ground. The actors actually were able to express emotion uh, through those makeups. It's kind of tough. And John Chambers made it work. The society from the novel was originally very high-tech and modern, fully advanced with everything from helicopters to weapons. But this high-tech society idea would far surpass the budget for the film. So, another idea had to be dreamed up. It was then decided that the Apes Society would be made a primitive one, and the production was able to continue in its preparations for filming. Mike Wilson was then brought in to do a rewrite on Rod Serling's faithful-to-the-novel script to change the society and bring in believable characters. 
William Krieber was then chosen as production designer and went to work on creating the primitive community for the Apes planet. Before filming began, however, Edward G. Robinson pulled out, citing health concerns and admitting that the primitive ape makeup for the screen test drove him crazy, and he couldn't foresee comfortably doing the full-scale production. To add insult to injury, after losing their original choice for Dr. Zayas, the studio, concerned with the ever-growing budget for the film, cut the production's shooting schedule from 55 days to 45. This affected everything within the film except for the makeups and the budget. With a final amount of $5.8 million agreed upon, the shooting finally went forward on May 21, 1967. The first shots actually filmed were the astronauts' trek across the wilderness. The scenes were filmed in a desolate location surrounding the Colorado River in Utah and Arizona. These sequences were filmed in order and at length by director of photography Leon Shamroy. During these many days of filming the opening sequence, the heat was often as high as 120 degrees, causing one of the actors to pass out from the extreme temperatures. The shooting went on for several days, as the director felt it set the mood and the tone of the film, causing the audience to feel a sense of being lost and having no idea where they are going. This builds up a feeling of claustrophobic foreboding, which remains a palpable emotion throughout the rest of the film. The remainder of filming took place at the Fox Ranch. The scene of the hunt was to be the most powerful and disturbing of all the sequences in the film. Zanuck really wanted it to grab the attention of the audience and really shock them. Director Franklin J. Schaffner, now behind the camera, shot the sequences in order. Helping to create an eerie, otherworldly atmosphere was the experimental music score composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Goldsmith utilized unusual instruments like metal mixing bowls, a ram's horn, and a Brazilian kuka, which could recreate ape vocalizations. At the end of the hunt, Taylor is taken captive and comes into contact with Dr. Zira, played by Kim Hunter. Zira is sympathetic to the humans and seems to be the most trustworthy of the apes in the hospital. She is engaged to Cornelius, who is an archaeologist in the ape civilization. Arthur Jacobs personally offered me the part of Cornelius on a plane flight back from London. I accepted immediately, intrigued by the technical challenge of acting inside the elaborate ape makeup. I remember Roddy McDowell saying that uh, the trick for acting behind those makeups was to overact with your face, then it would bleed through the makeup. If we didn't keep the appliances moving, uh, they began to look like masks. Roddy and I got very used to making them move all the time. We were doing all kinds of crazy little things with our face all the time <laughs> to keep them moving. Roddy and I had to kiss 
and, and we had no sense of feeling. We had to really work hard to make it look as if we were properly kissing each other without squishing the appliances. Cornelius. Enter the role of Dr. Zayas, which was taken over after the departure of Edward G. Robinson by veteran stage actor Maurice Evans. Dr. Zayas is an orangutan and a skeptical elder statesman in the community. He believes that man is a wasteful nuisance, and that it is a waste of time for chimpanzees in the hospital to study man at length. He feels man is best exterminated rather than studied. Taylor is determined to not only escape, but to prove Dr. Zayas is wrong, and to fight for the rights of man in the upside-down simian culture. This results in his escaping from his prison and running amok through the ape civilization on a number of occasions which proved to contain many inconveniences and discomforts for the actor portraying him during the film. Actors are supposed to be able to accept the circumstances, uh, the premises of whatever project they're doing. But it was a very unusual acting challenge. Painful. So I could run apparently barefoot. They had rubber booties that were molded to be feet. And that protected me from thorns. We were doing some stuff where I'm running through the shrubbery and people are throwing things at me. And I said to Joe Cannot, who doubled me, would you mind just doing these last couple of run-throughs? He says, no. I said, what do you mean? He said, you've been working all afternoon in poison ivy. <laughs> and so I was. He says, you'll notice it tomorrow. And I did. <laughs> Behind the scenes during shooting, an interesting phenomenon took place, which must be mentioned here as it is an irony that coincides with the main lessons being taught by the film. During the lunchtimes, the different types of ape classes, aka the gorillas, chimpanzees, and orangutans, would all unknowingly segregate themselves from one another. None of the actors were aware of their doing this, however, it is very interesting to see considering how segregation and prejudice is a very strong theme in the film, and is one that is being fought against by the protagonists of the story. There was kind of a self-segregation. The gorillas would all eat at one table, the chimpanzees would eat at another, and uh, the orangutans would eat at another. I have no explanation for that whatsoever, but it was true. The actors were never conscious of it. They just drifted to their companions, to their, to the same groupings as, as in the film. Fascinating. Ironically, the issues of class separation and prejudice are one of the film's main themes. The ape society is given a distinct class structure. The orangutans are the politicians. The chimpanzees are the scientists and intellectuals. The gorillas are the laborers and the military enforcers. It was an allegorical device used by the filmmakers to make some pointed observations about human society. Without ever saying it, we were doing a political film. We never even said it very loudly among ourselves because at that time we were in Vietnam. And a political picture was the last kind of film that a studio wanted. The country was having very serious problems. The film's strong themes on fighting racism, fearing people or creatures who are vastly different from us, and trying to destroy truth in the hopes of keeping one's political motives at the forefront of society's vision were consistent throughout the entire series of films. 
and is broached most heavily during the trial sequence as well as into the end of the film. During the trial sequence, Taylor's humanity and his recognition of language, ability to speak, and his high level of intelligence is constantly attacked by the orangutans, who feel that Taylor is a threat to their society, while Cornelius and Zira fight hard to prove to the politicians that he poses no threat whatsoever. Their consistent battling throughout the hearing, eventually proving that there was a human society on the planet before the apes took over, and their completely taking sympathetic allegiance to Taylor causes problems for the two scientists, who are eventually accused of heresy and made to be outcasts in their society. The end of the film where Taylor discovers a decaying Statue of Liberty on the beach was meant to simply shock the audience. It was never meant to really send a message, though that is how it eventually ended up. Shooting completed August 10th, 1967, on time and on budget. Planet of the Apes had its world premiere on February the 8th, 1968. It was a box office smash, grossing over $26 million and reaching audiences of all ages. They build the cities, make the laws, the gods. Adults responded to its intelligent script and first-rate performances. Man has no understanding. Children thrilled to the film's adventure and fantasy elements. 20th Century Fox transforms the motion picture screen into Planet of the Apes. The film also found favor with critics, who praised its uniqueness, timely political commentary, and entertainment value. Planet of the Apes, beyond your wildest dreams. In 1989, while being interviewed by Hello! magazine, Roddy had this to say about the Planet of the Apes saga and its great box office success. Cinema is so unpredictable. You never know what the public is going to like. We all thought that Planet of the Apes would be successful, but the response it got was extraordinary. Nevertheless, there were movies of which I expected a better response and the public hasn't gone and seen them. In truth, the movie made a resounding smash hit with its audiences, and it unleashed a massive phenomenon that no one affiliated with the productions before or after the first film were prepared for. It created such a buzz that the studio practically demanded a sequel, and all of the stars from the original production were requested to return and reprise their roles. But some changes had to be made. Charlton Heston was also asked to return but he was apprehensive of being brought back for a second film. Not being a fan of sequels or feeling very unsure about whether the next film would be better or worse than the first, Heston agreed to return with a proviso that his character be killed off in the second film. The producers had no problem with this request, and Taylor's death was sealed into the script and executed with great panache at the end of the film. The other problem with the production lay in Roddy's lap. When called to return for the Ape sequel, McDowell was in Scotland directing his first movie, The Ballad of Tam Lin, starring Ava Gardner and Ian McShane, who would later credit Roddy with making him a star, and was unavailable to return for the sequel. He was therefore temporarily replaced for the next film, and was able to carry on with achieving his directorial dreams. The films would shortly become major cult classics, which would bring Roddy consistent work into the mid-1970s, and also brought about a massive burgeoning of merchandise bearing Roddy's ape likeness. Not only was advertising given a boost by the success of the new series, but Roddy's image was too. 
Though 40 years old when the first film came out, Roddy's eternally youthful looks, coupled with the success of the Apes franchise, catapulted him, for the second time in his life, into heartthrob status, and he became featured once again, though this time as an adult, in teen magazines throughout the 70s, as one of the many heartbreaker du jours. Lots of fake articles that were devised simply for baiting gullible tween and teenage girls suddenly became a part of the norm. These articles were topping the charts in modern fiction and contained dozens of contrived interviews and quotes that Roddy never uttered about what his dream girl would act and sound like, leaving naive girl readers either swooning in ecstasy or crying tears of horror that they would never live up to the outrageous standards that fake interviews claimed Roddy held. Whether Roddy was aware of these magazine articles is unknown, but whether he knew it or not, it certainly never fazed him. He continued, as always, working steadily and giving his 150% best in every single performance, causing each film that he was involved in to be bigger and better than the first. This dedication to the characters he played in the Apes saga brought the series the success and adoration that it still holds today, 50 years later. Therefore, I have decided to do a series of podcasts based on the Apes films and television series that Roddy was involved in. However, since Roddy was only involved with four out of the five films in the saga, and this podcast is based on his career alone, I will be covering the saga from Roddy's perspective. That means that from here, I will next cover his directorial debut and finale by discussing his film, The Ballad of Tam Lin and we'll move forward with the remaining Apes films from there. This is a very exciting endeavor for me, and I hope all of you listening will enjoy the journey as much as I have during the process of studying the films, gathering all of the research for them, and presenting them to you in this podcast. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us for the next episode, The Ballad of Tam Lin. I am Zoe Dean. And I'm Albie. And until we see you next time, dear friends, remember to keep smiling. You seem to bring faraway spring near me. I'm always in full bloom. When you're in the room for every night at seven. Every time the same thing happens, I fall once again in love. But only with you. Every night about seven. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. This episode of the podcast was hosted by Zoe Dean and Albert Burge, and was written and edited by Zoe Dean with Albert Burge as a co-editor. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Barron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. The films and television shows discussed and heard in these podcasts remain the property of their respective owners. Not Just Yesterday is not affiliated with any major film or television company, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit BarrenSpace.com for this and other amazing content. This has been a Barren Space production.